1: And when you get a text intro to somebody from a friend of yours that says you need to meet my mad scientist buddy, the answer is always yes. And so I said yes. So,
0: uh, well, come on, Seth. Thank Chuck. Thank you for having me. Um, Happy to be uh, mad, if not terribly angry.
1: (laughs) Perfect. Well, tell tell the audience real quick your your background because I don't think I can do it justice. We talked the other day on the phone. And I think you said everything but
0: professional race car driver, but maybe you're holding that back on me. No, there's, I promise you, there's nothing, there's nothing held back. Um, so, you know, you guys talk a lot about the intersection between energy and, and finance on this show. And a lot of, there's a lot of interest in technology, right? I, I come at things from a technology perspective. So I had, I got a PhD in chemistry back 25 years ago. Um, and I started out actually in Dallas in the semiconductor industry working for Texas Instruments. Um, my wife grew up in Colorado. She convinced me to move out here. And at the end of 2008, I found myself in the great recession, um, after having left a startup and, uh, well, technically they let go, uh, they, they made the step to let go of me. Um, I had to figure out what to do with my life and I became a consultant. Um, and so like a lot of consultants, it's really hard to have a simple story about what I do, but I, I, there, there are three pieces. One is I do technology consulting around especially batteries, but also other areas in renewable energy. Um, The second is I do innovation consulting, helping folks figure out how to deploy their innovation dollars, innovation investments um, towards building new technologies. And then the third, I guess I'll just sort of throw into translation. um, And that's like doing diligence for venture capitalists, working with attorneys, trying to help make sure that people understand technology. and. Are able to sort of make rational decisions based on what's actually going on on the ground. So that's where my interests are. Um, I do a lot of you know inventing and patenting, and I think that's where the mad scientist thing comes from. but um, but you know, mostly, I'm just a technologist who happens to like finance and energy stuff on the side.
1: Oh, that's cool. The So you were kind enough to send me an article you had written about uh, climate change. And maybe a framework for how to think about it and how to study it, and say, is it actually happening? Is it not happening? Uh, We don't have to read the whole article out loud, but do you mind kind of just summarizing a bit? Because when I was going through it, I maybe level set for the audience because I had some questions. I found it really fascinating and very constructive.
0: Well, cool. Uh, First, I'm glad you like it, and this was inspired by the fact that. uh, you know back this is i wrote this in 2016 um i was doing a bit of uh, quite a bit of blogging back then and i was unsatisfied with the idea that because 97% of climate scientists believed um in global warming that we should just listen to them right i i'm not really great with listening to authority generally speaking <laughs> um a lot of inventors have that have that character trait um, i love and, that yeah, and so so, you know, pushing back on that, trying to scratch at that, what is it exactly? Because look, I'm a scientist. I know A, that scientists can be wrong, and B, that frankly, entire fields of science can sometimes wander off of the edge, right? Um, there was a story that I wrote just prior to this one about how physics um and astronomy at the turn of the last century, so the end of the 1900s, you know, beginning of the 2000s. I'm sorry, the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. We honestly thought that th- there were a lot of a lot of respectable physicists thought there were canals on the moon, like channels on the moon, and I'm sorry, on Mars. My apologies, channels on Mars. And the idea, that the challenge was that they were looking into telescopes, and they were looking in the same kind of telescopes at the same resolution. The channels that folks saw and they really did see these things turned out to be optical illusions that had a lot to do with the exact magnification of those telescopes. And folks later figured out where the where the errors were. But when everyone is using the same tool, um, folks can become dis, you know go down the wrong path. So science can do that. How do we know they're not doing that with global warming? I wanted to have a more formal a better understanding of how to address that question than just listening to scientists. And so I started to to dig in. Cuz you know one of the points you
1: made that that I've always had the question of and and maybe level setting from my side, I always think that the observation ought to be able to be seen by a whole lot of people in the data, right? Just yeah we all know that the apple fell out of the tree. Now we need Newton to tell us about gravity and that's why. So I'm all for scientists explaining it why. And when I've looked at the data on climate change, I saw something that you brought up in your article. So I'll I'll, I'll lay it out there is, yes, it looks like temperatures have risen, call it a degree and a half, two degrees since 1850. But it also looks like CO2 has risen, but CO2 is rising in front of temperature. Yeah. And to me, an observation is I have a cold Coca-Cola sitting there in ice, and as it warms up over time, it gets flat, right? The, the right. CO2 f- bubbles out. So I've always kind of said, how are we not sure CO2 is first? I mean, uh, temperature is first and CO2 follows versus what we think today is CO2
0: up, therefore, temperature's up? Yeah. So, so th- like, this is actually a great question. And because if you look at the history of the data, if you go back a century or so, what you'll find in the data is that as CO2 started to rise, temperature was actually rising before CO2 did. And they didn't cross over um, until, I think it was maybe the 70s. I think where you start to really see CO2 rising and outstripping the temperature gains and and it looks more like CO2 came first. And you know that is a significant challenge that you have to be willing to reckon with now the 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 there's a longer answer and a shorter answer to that one, and I'll give you the shorter answer, which is that when the CO2 was rising in the 1920s and 1930s and we first started to have combustion engines and whatnot it wasn't rising at an incredibly high rate. And so the natural variability of temperature was greater than the forcing from the climate that CO2 was creating. Starting in the 1970s, those things flipped, right? The forcing and that humans would create ends up outstripping the natural variability. So it's not nuts to see something like this. We should be pretty rigorous and make sure that we're doing things logically. Um, but it on its own, isn't enough to be able to say one way or the other. We need to look at a broader set of data. Right.
1: So and now I'm gonna go in a, in a weird different direction, but this is fascinating to me, and I appreciate you humoring me. How good is our actual data? Because when I go back and read about data, and I have not deep dived it, so I should not be held out as an expert in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. But you hear about how back in 1930 we took temperatures at, you know. 50 miles at sea. And now we yeah. take it at land. We used to take it, you know, the airports, we moved them out to the airports where there's more concrete, maybe it's warmer. D- do we have confidence even that we're looking
0: at good data or do we know? Oh, we, we have very good data. So let me back up a second. Okay. And, say, look, and, I, and I want to let the audience know. So my, my background is a chemist. I'm not a climate science full, scientist full time. I do a lot of science communication. And so a lot of what I'm doing is pulling in strands of evidence that are coming from lots of different fields, right? And, and, and again, we have lots of different strands. So very specifically in the article that I wrote, um, I talk about something called Hill's criteria, which is a set of criteria that we use to assess whether or not we understand something. There are nine of them. We'll talk a little bit about what each of those are. But the, the type of criteria that you're talking about are things like consistency right? So we see a temperature change on a, a mountain in Hawaii, for example. That's one piece of data. But also we see a seasonal change. We see the growing season lengthen in the U.S. We see the growing season lengthen in Japan. We can see evidence of migration of animals. So there's not just a single temperature measurement that we're relying on. There needs to be some sort of consilience of all of these different strands before we actually start to all converge on the same same uh, source conclusion, um, so yes, there is a dramatic amount of evidence. It's literally all over the map. It comes from climate scientists, but it will come from folks in a lot of different fields, and all of it points at the same direction. That yeah, that the Earth's warming. There's pretty much no doubt about it.
1: Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, fair enough. I. Um... I had read someplace, um, and you know, for all I know, it was off Twitter, so it may be a hundred percent garbage. But I'd read, if you looked back, kind of over time, and you looked at what I'll call the extrapolation of data. I.e., we used to rate, you know, take the temperature at ten in the morning. Now we do it at two in the afternoon, and an adjustment factor is at a degree and a half or whatever, you know, any th- right. time we kind of manipulated data to corresponding to changes in methodology that uh, versus just a raw temperature reading that had been consistent over time, we actually find that most of the rising is attributed to the interpolated data, and not the raw data. And my point about that is not that global warming isn't happening. It could be way worse than we think because who knows if the interpolations are right. But
0: yeah, you know, I mean, if your data sucks, I mean, you should always, always, always look and challenge to see whether the, the, the data is robust, right? Like I'm totally in favor of that. And and you know there are like when I wrote this article, I can't remember what the number was, but it was well over a hundred independently measured strands of data. The independence is huge. you don't want there to be a change in protocol which affects all of your measurements at the same time, right? It's like you change the CPI and now like you know you don't think you don't you don't look at things the same way anymore. you have to recognize and write that down. You want there to be independence of these things and again, this is kind of like you know it, it's not just guys with thermometers, it is farmers it is. You know, zoologists, plant biologists, um, it's guys in, in Antarctica and guys in Hawaii. Um, this is where that famous 97% number starts to come from, is that you do a, a Google Scholar search and you put in climate change in quotes and you look at the conclusion. You have some poor graduate student. Look at the conclusion of all <laughs> of the papers and classify them. And that's how you end up with these kinds of 97% numbers, but it's every field, everyone working at the same time is coming independently, right? Yeah. It, and it doesn't matter what country, it doesn't matter what their grant funding source was, Um, they're all looking at different sets of data and coming to the same conclusion.
1: Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So if, if you were kind of summarizing your article and your thoughts on it, and I'm curious and I'm yeah. Uh, just because I haven't studied this as much as I should. I always say on the podcast, we ignore this phenomenon at our own peril. That being said, I just don't know how much certainty we have around the link to kind of man-made uh, hydrocarbon burning leading to the actual increase in... Uh, in. Yeah. Uh, Temperature? Do you have
0: kind of a an opinion on where that shakes out?
1: Because you're a lot smarter than I am.
0: I am certainly a guy who spends time doing thinking about this stuff more than I get paid for, more than I should. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I always say my podcast is my
1: nonprofit endeavor, so yeah, I, agree. No, then, I understand.
0: It's blogging is the same way. I don't do this because I want to make money writing. Um, I am happy when it gets read. Um, and and this blog post has been used. Like I I I know somebody at uh, who is using it to teach classes at Columbia University, right? I mean this I I was very happy with the response to it. Um, but I'm I'm doing this because the because I believe that this matters, right? And and I believe that looking at this rigorously and rationally matters and skeptically and carefully all that stuff. I'm a technologist and a scientist, but also Like the way to think about this as an actuary, like this is insurance. This is what we're talking about here. And so one way to interpret your question is like, what's the insurance premium that we would want to pay against a future of climate change, right? What is, so there is a term of art in the environmental world called the social cost of carbon. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and it, even in the name is kind of airy fairy, the derivation is hard. And, and subject to some error. But the point of it is that, hey, we're adding carbon to the atmosphere. There is, if you look at the IPC reports, there's um, an estimated answer as to what the forcing is because of, of this carbon. There's error bars, right? The error bars all more or less tell you something's gonna happen when you add the CO2 to the atmosphere. How much is not always clear. So making a 2050 prediction is hard. But We have error bars. An actuary knows what to do with that. They can calculate a premium. Um, If you think about what the costs are to human health, the costs are to lost real estate. If you happen to live in Miami or um, in in Jakarta, um, anywhere in the the world, uh, most of our real estate is on coastal lands. And a lot of that's going to be imperiled by climate change, by, by rising oceans. That's the classic answer. But of course, there are effects on crops and there are fires in Colorado and Canada because of this. And the smoke causes health damages and, and, and it goes on. The number that science, the best science comes up with right now is $190 a ton is what the estimate is. Now, the government is using a number closer to $50 a ton when it's officially assessing damage. Um, but this, the best science analysis number is about $190. That's an extraordinary amount of money when we start talking about multiple gigatons of CO2 that we are releasing every year. So billions of tons of CO2 every year, tens of billions of of CO2 every year um, at the cost of $190 per ton, right? So I think the number is on the range of somewhere between 40 and 50 billion is what society combusts every year. so so yeah, you you start to get up into trillions of dollars of cost per year, and that effectively we're spending this. That that is a a cost into the future. There's a discount rate. It's not like you you, you got to think about this further. But yeah, that's it. Strikes me that's all about right. Honestly.
1: Yeah. So so te- you're the technologist. I have an opinion so I'll just say it and yeah. you can tell me you're an idiot or take it wherever you want to go. My sense is is that we have a fixed amount of money. That's just kind of life. You know, unfortunately, you know, my kids have a budget, they can, you know, their allowance, they can spend that. I'm unemployed. There's only so much money around the Yates house that we can spend and the world is that way. I don't know that we have the technologies available today to really do anything material against um, carbon being spewed out to make that much of a difference. So with my limited money, I'm looking for next generation technologies to do something about this or is your sense we have this to do today because I think at the end of the day our discussion should really be about yeah. you know kind of the water balloon we push here this side pops out how should we be going about dealing with this uh this uh carbon issue
0: yeah so I mean I the the, the dumb answer is why not both um I mean yeah we have limited resources but you you spend a little bit on today and a little bit on tomorrow um the Uh, the, the idea that you have that we should invest in long-term technology is I'm hundred percent aligned with that. And, and look from a political standpoint, if we just like ignore all of the theory stuff and say, Hey, if we make people's lives materially worse, they are going to vote us out of office. So stop it. Right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of simplifying assumptions and that one gets you to, I would like to make people have cheaper energy and if i can get solar and wind as great examples cheaper than coal and natural gas then everybody wins so let's invest in trying to make those t- technologies better for everybody i can make a good argument that evs are just better vehicles than combustion engine vehicles um we can get into arguments about it but you know they they got a little bit of pickup um the oh i um, drove a tesla for
1: 6 years it was an amazing dude, car there i mean z- z- 0 to 60 in 2.9 seconds that computer screen was amazing yes. the fact that i could push a button and have any seat make a fart noise to embarrass my kids
0: was priceless yeah was well i mean car. i don't know how much you pay for that for the for the fart noise is that, the, is that a standard option it, it was a free download that came with the yeah. one hundred
1: and forty-five thousand dollars uh, Model X that I, I owned. You know that I
0: bought seven, eight years ago. I just want to say the technology is great. Um, yeah. Look, the um, the the other thing about uh, EVs is that we frankly already passed the point where the long-term total cost of ownership of EVs is lower than internal combustion engine because EVs famously have far fewer parts. You don't have all of these mechanical failures in EV that, EVs that you do in internal combustion engine vehicles. So while the sticker price of EVs is higher, the total cost of ownership, when you include the fact that electricity is cheaper than gasoline and the repair costs long term for these EVs are going to be lower, you, you have a, a good value for the customer, and that's just going to get better as we scale these technologies and cost reduce them further. That's a great platform for a lot of the problem it doesn't solve everything right if you look and let me at- cut you let
1: me cut you off real uh, yeah. there real quick to throw one fact at you cuz i'm totally okay with letting the market compete and you know if it ultimately is true or i always think economics went out you know volvo did a deep dive it's on their website it's 150 pages long yeah. it put me to sleep 3 times but i have made it all the way through it we can fight about all the assumptions they, they made, but at the end of the day, they kind of have the breakover point for an internal combustion engine carbon footprint and an EV carbon footprint at anywhere from kind of 70 to I think 90,000 kilometers. Right. Which look, most cars are on the road 150,000, 200,000 miles because they all wind up in right. Latin America. We always joke that the greatest. Advertisement for a Toyota truck is the fact that, you know, anytime you see anybody in the Middle East driving an old car, it's a Toyota truck, you know. Right. Uh, But at at the end of the day, we're going to spend trillions of dollars to convert to internal combustion engines. I mean, to convert to EVs with charging stations, et cetera. Yeah. Is that really worth the money to do? Or should we be investing that money
0: elsewhere? All right, so I'm going to break this up into two parts. Um, okay, fair the enough. The first is, okay, so eighty, seventy to 90,000 kilometers, we'll call that 80,000 kilometers, which is 50,000 miles. So if you have a turning point in costs at 50,000 miles, then yeah, you're, you're better off with a battery electric vehicle if that battery electric vehicle costs as much as an internal combustion engine. So that's actually not inconsistent with my idea that, hey, battery electric vehicles are more expensive today, but... They will be longer term cheaper over the lifetime of that vehicle, totally consistent with what Volvo reported. Now, when you get and when you get into the details of what Volvo's assumptions are, the numbers that I've heard from other folks who have I don't know long physicist beards and <laughs> um and teach academic stuff, the, their numbers are in the thirty thousand mile kind of number. They get to assume a future grid which is greener. They get to assume a future battery supply chain which is greener, and those things are probably not wrong. Um, so, but whether it's thirty or fifty, I don't know if I care. Bottom line is that yeah, total cost of ownership is going to be lower, right? That's number one. Now, the second one, and and this one I know you're going to love. Um, there are other uh, other mitigating factors, new technologies that are going to arrive. And everybody's favorite punching bag for technologies that haven't arrived right now is um, is self-driving vehicles, right? Elon Musk being the classic uh, example of somebody that hasn't delivered, right? He's been promising for a long time. Self-driving has, turns out to be really hard. Um, it's being done in San Francisco right now. There are limited pilots, but it's happening slower than everybody predicted. Having said that, if you are an environmentalist, what you want more than Anything in the world is a self driving car because a self driving car changes the business model of driving from one of home individual ownership of a vehicle to a different one, which is transportation as a service. And when you move to transportation as a service, now the economics of a business matter and they are very used to an amortization curve and figuring out what the lowest TCO is and minimizing their long-term costs. If if we get self-driving vehicles, they'll all be electric, every single one of them.
1: So right. I will give you that point and I'll even make your case for you uh, as I'm ducking my oil and gas guys taking shots at me. But uh, if we just didn't accelerate at every green light, like we were 17 years old driving a car for the first time, that would do a lot. <laughs> and so having automated driving we will not be accelerating you know and even if right. you have an internal combustion engine if you're slotted in the auto drive cars you're going right. to drive more rationally so i'll give you that point the the the, the pushback i have on just evs is we're going to spend trillions in creating charging stations we're going to have more road repair work cuz evs are heavier than normal vehicles yep. And I have not done this math except after two bottles of wine. So take that
0: with a grain of yeah, salt. This is a definitely a two bottle of wine kind of conversation, to, even though technically it's mid-afternoon for both of us right yes, now. Yes, and, and I've been drinking water. so yeah, yeah.
1: But, but I honestly think to get all the rare earth metals that you're going to need to have all of these electric vehicles and such, that stuff's in the middle of nowhere. You're running that off diesel and a lot of the parts in the electric vehicles are plastic made of petroleum products i'm not sure we've really minimized the amount of right. combustion that happens by going to electric vehicles and we haven't even touched disposing yeah. of these batteries yet you know all right so
0: hear, hear me out
1: okay. the future yeah. the,
0: the so if you Try to look at the intersection of these technologies. And that's sort of what I do for a living is think about the think think about again how to deploy technology investment dollars, what technologies are going to be coming down the future, how is that going to intersect with your technology? What's going to substitute for what? Um, if I can substitute home ownership with a vehicle that I can summon on demand, my CapEx utilization for my car in my garage is six percent you know four percent i don't even like i don't even commute i work in my freaking basement right this is hello right i barely use this vehicle and and it is dumb at some level for me to go mine all that lithium and nickel and cobalt and put it inside of a metal box inside of a bigger box inside my house right that's not very intelligent or efficient utilization if i had the ability to just summon a vehicle and it was economically competitive to do so then this would be a solution because we would need 10% 10x fewer or 10% of the vehicles 10% of the batteries so less sheet metal less lithium less nickel less cobalt right that's the best that's the best answer that we can have a lot of the environmentalists who I know who are very much in favor of transforming the economy in other ways, they get a little bit itchy about self-driving vehicles and about those kinds of societal changes. But the software issues around being, what software allows you to do is efficiently use resources, right? At the end of the day, that's what all the software revolution is about. If we push that forward and we were a little bit more aggressive in, encouraging and allowing self-driving vehicles, have it would have huge knock-on, accl- knock-on effects for the transportation sector and for carbon.
1: Yeah. All right. No, I'll get that. I'll get, I'll get that. Uh, and I, I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll buy into that. I don't know two things. And I think five to 10 years ago, I would have made this first point very passionately. Now I will make it very meekly, kind okay. of post-pandemic. Ten years ago, nobody on the planet wants a self-driving car. they want to drive a car because the whole reason to have a car is so you can woo beautiful women and right. you know you don't want a self-driving car doing whatever i don't know I've softened up on our uh, yeah. ability on our resolve to remain independent here so i think I think that's kind of uh, that's kind of one yeah. issue. the second. It's going to be fascinating to watch the regulatory environment try to sort all this out because at the end of the day, who's responsible for what when a wreck happens? I actually think that's way more the limiting factor than the actual
0: technology. Yeah, which is to say that as a society, we have some say in this, right? We could, as a society, decide to allow this to happen faster or slower. And, um, And we will make that decision. I would like to see some competition between societies. I want someone out there to um I don't know to be captured by the automotive apparatus and allow this. I mean, this is you know, I like I want I want somebody to do the experiment. Um the the sad truth of the matter is that um very much US regulatory structure gets mimicked worldwide. And so folks you know you you do not have the situation where like the Sing- the singaporean government is like woohoo let's let's get ahead and and allow mm-hmm. this first although you would think of all countries in the world singapore is like really well placed to be like here's what the rules are going to be guys and we're going to do this first and it's going to make not just personal transportation cheaper and better but also i mean like okay deep breath we forget about buried pipes. We forget about infrastructure and the importance of infrastructure. You're an oil and gas guy, so maybe you haven't forgotten the way that other people have. But one of the biggest barriers to economies of scale is having to physically co-locate different pieces of manufacturing equipment, right? If you had self-driving vehicles, effectively robots that can go from business to business and take a load from one machine to another, and be able to, to allow what's effectively a, uh, an API call in the physical world, if you would, that would be kind of cool, right? That would kind of be revolutionary for the cost of building things. Um, we can't do it because it costs too much to pay a Teamster to take the load. Um, if it's all automated, you get some other benefits. So there's all of this knock-on effects that you get from making a core transportation or distribution technology cheaper that are phenomenal. And I'm a hundred percent in in of the belief that, yeah, you know as much as as much as um cars are sex and whatnot, the kids aren't having sex today anyway, so apparently that's going save it. Um, Thank goodness, so, I have three daughters, so I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean I worry I worry a little bit, but nobody's leaving the house, um, and I'm pretty sure that's a precursor to actually meeting somebody the um the you know, if it's cheaper, it'll happen. Self-driving cars would be cheaper. It would be cheaper than owning a new car in your own garage with the the cost of insurance and car payments and maintenance and gasoline. Right. Um, so the value prop is potentially there for society. I would love to see us double down. I'm a minority opinion here. I'm fine with that, right? But it's it, you know, going back, core principles from my perspective as an environmentalist slash technology guy, make People's lives better and they will be, they will welcome the change. Invest in the technologies that will make their lives better. Give them more and cheaper energy. Give them more and cheaper transportation. And you will see them switch over to the things that you want. But if all you can do is tell people that they're bad if they don't change, they will just get angry. And like, I'm not as interested in that. And, and I think when you
1: and I were talking the other day, I think I said kind of the same thing, but just in a little bit of a different way. If our solution to climate change from Europe and the United States to China, India, and where the vast majority of the future population is coming from, Africa, if our solution to climate change is let them eat cake. Yeah. I you need to suffer with more expensive energy or whatever. I just think that's going to be fundamentally really bad. Yeah. Bad I mean, things
0: will happen. The the history of the environmentalist movement has been to say no to things, right? That's right. been like we are going to try to to throw as much debris as possible into the gears of capitalism in order to be able to slow it down so we stop polluting, right? Now the 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 the, the the perspective is a little bit different. Now we have solar technologies, things that are green. The greens, some of some of the greens are like, hey, actually, like this whole building permit thing, haha, just kidding. We now are against building permits. We're now against permitting problems, also. We want this sped up, right? And I, I'm in that camp where I'm like, oh yeah, no, like build things, right? Everybody should build. But there's a real um philosophical break inside of the environmentalist movement between folks like me who are like build more faster just do a green this time and folks who are like no we have to stop capitalism yeah right? and no yeah, I, i'm yeah
1: i i actually don't think we're that par- far apart i think where we would get potentially far apart is how much are we willing to use the stick of the government and oh yeah I'm, you know are, I'm I'm parents. I'm very much a libertarian and let markets play out where they may and I also have this strain and this is my british girlfriend hates this but I have this unbrid this unbridled belief that when a crisis happens nobody steps up and deals with it like the united states so if we really are dramatically changing the planet at some point We'll get our act together, we'll step up, we'll handle the crisis. So I sleep well at night, letting the market just do what it wants to do. But, but, but us handling
0: the crisis is the government getting involved? Like that's exactly what it looks like. this this, this thing, this is actually <laughs> happening, right? The, I would I would love it if we could have a carbon tax and get everybody the hell out of the way. Like I would totally, you know, a carbon tax is like there was a period of time where Republicans, this was maybe 25 years ago, the idea of a flat tax. Do you remember that conversation? And and, hey, we're going to get rid of the income tax and we're going to put in a value added tax or something like that. And a carbon tax is a VAT, right? A carbon tax is a flat tax, but it's on carbon instead of on dollars. It's the same thing. I would love for a world that would allow us to converge on that as a solution, it does not appear to be this world. Maybe in a different simulation, we could have that. Um, so I will I
1: will make I will make ground here. I will actually agree with you on that. I, I because even if you are a hundred percent don't believe in climate change that it's natural, CO two does pollute. I mean, you just have to go to a big city with a bunch of cars running around. There is some pollution there. Right. So it does have a cost. I And, you know, I mean, my two issues with the carbon tax is, one, I'm not for unilateral disarmament. So if China and India aren't yeah. signing up for this, you know, it that, doesn't and really help fair, us. Right? And, two, and two, I just hate the slippery slope nature of it. It's carbon tax. It goes here. It goes there. But yeah. You know. yeah.
0: If I if I can give you a reduction on your income tax, and we're going to charge it you as carbon tax, and we'll be revenue. I mean, there are ways to frame this. There are solutions to these problems. As it stands, we've gone a different route. We've done the Inflation Reduction Act, and um, we are going to spend I don't know trillion ish, two trillion. I'm not sure what the latest numbers are on green technologies, and and some of it's going to be wasted, and. Um, I know it's terrifying. Um, (laughs) Some of it's it's going to be spent on technologies that didn't work. Um, it's not efficient, but also probably uh, almost certainly better than not. Um, and so that seems to be the way that we're doing it. It's, it's, we are weirdly paying down our future carbon bills by creating loans, which our descendants will have to pay down instead. but. If the cost of those interest payments and loans are lower than the cost of the carbon, then I guess that's okay. So the math works, and I'm I'm not going to be like a philosopher. It's like, dude, whatever works, let's just get this, <laughs> let's get this started. And again, you know, we're we're gonna for a lot of this stuff, we're gonna make people's lives better by doing it. That's yeah. the hope. So I'm gonna
1: totally kind of close this segment, yeah. if you will, with a, with a question. I have been so vastly impressed by you and I have been Aww. conferred the honor of bestowing upon you energy czar of the world. So whatever sure. you say goes, oh, we Lord. all have to listen to it. We all have to do it. Give me kind of the, the, the plan, the the bullet point version of the plan you put in place to get us where you want to go. Do I get to have a beer first?
0: Sure. <laughs> you have a, you, like? you can have art. a beer.
1: You can you oh can gosh. have two All bottles right. of
0: wine, whatever, but putting you in charge, what are the two or three things you're doing? All right. So um as energies are of the world, I feel compelled to give this a total of about twenty-eight seconds of reflection. Um <laughs> that's yeah, that seems about right. Um what what do we do? You know, I want so the the way that i look at this is that there's a cost of carbon now the the damage from co2 adds over time so if i ha- if i release a co2 molecule today and it absorbs light um and and it absorbs infrared and doesn't allow it to escape and re-emits it to the ground that's how this process works and as long as that co2 molecule is there it's going to keep doing that with new photons so it's integrating right you want to, you know, you you want to do as much as you can right now. At the same time, you also are going to be um, accelerating exponentially your capabilities going forward. So you got to invest in them, right? Um, and so, you know, if I had, if I were the, the czar, yeah, a carbon tax is probably the most economically efficient. I would figure out a way to make people want to tax the, the tax as a solution. I'm not sure how I do that. I mean look like soda is hypnosis bad. hypnosis may be the way uh, I, I mean I mean you know you would think with all of the attention that people give to 5G and mind control we would have a solution to this <laughs> and yet we fail the um like we can't even do a soda tax and make it stick like France can't even do a soda tax and make it stick like we it is We are literally killing ourselves with sugar. There is no like people do not argue about this. It tastes good though, so please get out of my way. And and so this this human nature is hard. Um, but I would want there to be a carbon tax. I would want to set a price of carbon. I would want to set it low at first. I would want to slowly raise it. It's going to take time to establish accounting methods, and you have to be realistic about the pace. I do not want to see us move so quickly that we accidentally move into a crisis of energy shortage. I do not want people to die because they are shivering in the winter or they can't get cool in the summer because we moved too quickly. So I want to be responsible about it. But and let me let me cut you right. off and just
1: say to oil and gas folks that are listening to that. That's a true belief you have cuz we talked about that the other day and that was one of the things I was going to bring up is yeah. you you're you you I think are very pragmatic about it in terms of what we were talking about the other day of hey we can't yeah. cause death today and oh by the way we're actually going to have to be intellectually honest that we go to solar and wind we don't have dispatchable power like we do today if we replace and we've got to be honest and navigate those treacherous waters too so i thought you were really fair on that
0: yeah and you know and i'll tell you just straight up like i i hang out with climate activists who hate the fact that you know we're going to be having to build a lot of new gas plants capacity um in order to turn on and off quickly in order to be able to to match the high solar and wind loadings that we're going to have and that last 20 percent of electricity we just don't have an answer for we you know um and that's real and we should respect that reality while trying to invest in solutions that will get around it um but yeah you know having said all of that look you know where does the co2 come from um you know it comes from the electricity sector so you shut down coal and that's happening um it comes from from burning natural gas and most of the baseload natural gas is probably going to go away on its own because it's not going to be long term cost competitive with solar and wind but that last 20% i don't got a solution for And that's going to be gas, right? Um, Until we have another, an an alternative. Um, I would, you know, obviously move uh, from EV, from internal combustion engine to EVs. And I would ideally do it as self-driving cars because they will be more, they will have less of a resource requirement. And again, they'll make people's lives better when you do it. Everybody can still, you can still keep your, Car, your Aston Martin from 1968 in your garage or whatever, and go to the mountains, fine. I don't care. Right? Like, I don't want this to be everything. This isn't about regulating everybody's individual behavior. This is about giving people options that don't create this long-term debt overhang in terms of climate. Um, by the way, 20% of the problem is agriculture and land use. And um of c o two emissions, a lot of that comes to deforestation in Brazil. So, yeah, as Czar, I'm also trying to figure out ways to incentivize folks in the global south to stop cutting down trees. and that is really hard because now the problem is that you know the job of a cow is to monetize land, and the reason why people down those trees is because the trees aren't monetizing the land. And so figuring out how to get people money to stop that without incentivizing weird behaviors is hard. But I think about it. Um, you know, there are there's um the rest of it ends up being a lot of software. Like I'll give you a I'll give you an example of a way we can do things smarter. Um steel right now, you know, we uh, has a huge concrete footprint. Uh, sorry, carbon footprint. Um, when we when we make steel, it's something like seven or eight percent of global CO two emissions is basically steel, like an is there's st- or steel and concrete. Um, so this inf- these infrastructure projects are are a big deal. Um, and um, this the concrete emits carbon dioxide not just from having to heat it, but but chemically. Um, you take calcium carbonate, and you turn it to calcium oxide, and carbon dioxide comes out. Um. Figuring out ways to use these things more intelligently is important. If you know, if you had the ability, when you took down a building, to take the I-beams and inspect them and put them somewhere so that you could use those same I-beams when you designed a new building, that would be kind of clever. And that's, in principle, possible with better software, but in practice, too hard for us right now. But it seems kind of within reach. So, there's all sorts of other little things that I would just figure out ways to incentivize.
1: So, my, I will give you my thing if I am made energy czar of the world. My first priority, I'm going to spend 500 billion incentivizing whales to have sex. Because I honestly, I, have you heard? 100% in front of sex, in favor of sexy whales. Because, I, I so I'll start and you take over because you probably actually know the real facts. I don't. But, you know, you look back 200, 250 years ago, we had four to five million whales on the planet. Today, we got about a million four they talk about. And it's because we were killing whales for oil as well as nowadays we hit them with ships. Baby yeah. whales are curious about a ship. They, so that, And if you look at a whale, when it dies, it has, on average, I think, 33 tons of CO2 in it. It sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and we don't see that CO2 again for years. Right. But more importantly, the greatest source of getting rid of CO2 is, I think it's, what, plankton is 40% of the photosynthesis that happens on the planet. And so the greatest environment for plankton is whale shit. And so I want more whales
0: out there. So I'm 100% aligned with you. So let me tell you a story. So one of the blog posts that I wrote was on what happened to the whales. Do you know why we killed the whales? What we used that oil for? I mean, blubber, right? To light lamps so we could read at night. We solved solved the blubber problem in the late 1800s. Um, You know, it was first coal oil and then obviously petroleum, right? Much better than whale blubber. It was margarine. Really, we killed them to make margarine. no way we, we killed the whales, we rendered them in because whale blubber was slightly less expensive than these things like um like safflower oil and cottonseed oil and such that was relatively new. We didn't have an agricultural system, we had a rapidly industrializing world. We didn't have enough butter um we margarine was cheaper and Um, And the big damage that we did to the whales in, say, the 1920s and 1930s, this was at the global hunt, was to feed um, oil for margarine. Oh, wow. There's no good reason why we killed the whales is what I want to say. And in fact, in the 1950s, it was worse because by the time that the Europeans had largely dropped out of the whale market and it was the Japanese doing it for tradition and the Russians and the Russians were literally doing it in the pursuit of Stalin's five-year plans. They would they would render the whales. They wouldn't even be using these things, right? There it was it was on a record somewhere, and you did not say no, and so the Russian ships continued, right? It was an enormous amount of destruction, but when I believe, I think it was the Nor. I'm trying to remember if it, if it was the Norwegians or the Swedes who were the the leaders in um the whaling industry. So the U.S. At the end, and God, I'm so sorry, but you just have to put up with this story. No, At the, love end, it. At the end of the 1800s, um, towards the end of the 1800s, the US was the world's whaling nation. We were the superpower, um, but we um, we ended up having high labor costs because we had a lot of economic growth. Didn't happen elsewhere. So the US economy is great. Y- you have all of these folks who previously would be willing to put up with a whaling ship and now were are demanding huge salaries. So the U.S. effectively got out of the whaling business. Um, the, the Northern Europeans got into it. And for you know, the next couple generations, they led it. And there was a real question once everybody understood that, in fact, the whales were being depleted. This was a limited natural resource. We were going to have to stop. right? They started to invest in converting their, their cities and towns that were whaling towns into other industries. And they did it. And it didn't, it didn't destroy the economy. It was OK, right? Um, they, they recognized that what they were doing was long-term, unsustainable. They made a conscious effort as a society to invest in change, and there really wasn't a, an economic reckoning. Do you know where I'm going with this story? I am so impressed,
1: because not only are you a mad scientist and all that, you just outpodcasted me. That was awesome. That was good
0: stuff. This is a story like I was, I, I, again, this was back when I was doing regular blogging and it was wild that we all knew that we killed the whales and nobody that I would talk to knew why. Right. And that was a story for me to try to go figure out what the heck happened. Um, but there is, there are lessons in that for us because we had peak blubber way before anybody talked about peak oil. And, and it's, a, it's a great example of a, de, of a natural resource that we actually did deplete. Um, but if I go all the way back to your point that actually sinking whales to the bottom of the ocean is an incredible way to store carbon, that's true. And actually fertilizing the ocean to encourage uh, microalgae to grow is, is a great way to also true. And if I had Viagra for whales, maybe that <laughs> is what I should be focused on. Like- you know, there are there are a lot of people out there who are trying to figure out if there are ways to store CO2 in the ocean. I haven't heard anybody say Viagra for whales yet, and maybe they should. Um the it is it it is a huge opportunity there. You can get carbon credits, man.
1: See if there you can go. if you
0: can create. Just get the get get a new bill. Steve Scalise is now the uh the head of the, the Speaker of the House. Float him the idea. See if he'll support it. Uh, we I can, actually we'll would want to do time.
1: it just to say I save the planet by having whales
0: have sex. I mean, I just think that would be a cool story. I would get hoodies made up saying that. I think I think we could try to raise some money just by selling the hoodies and see if if we can't can, you know do some experiments and get this thing going. Perfect. Hey, Seth, this was a ton of fun. What I would love to do
1: at some point, uh, if I haven't totally repulsed you with doing these things, is I'd love to have you back at some point because we didn't even scratch wild technologies. And my sense is you and I could spend an hour talking wild technologies out there. So I'd love to have you back on at some point into the future To to do this, because you know, this this hour has flown
0: by and I really enjoyed it a lot. I appreciate you coming on. Well, Chuck, I've had a lot of fun too. I would love like, so this is the stuff that I've done as a writer and a lot of this climate thing. This I'm very passionate about it, obviously. The technology is what I do for a living. So I'd be happy to come and talk about that too. And there's a lot of there's a lot of neat opportunities to, again, I'll say it one more time, to make people's lives better by um by changing the kinds of technology that they use
1: that's that's really cool the uh I'll, I'll even throw this out there is there a field trip that could uh show us a lot of that Ooh. stuff because i'd bring a camera crew and uh and walk around uh someplace with you hooked up with microphones because i think that'd yeah. be cool if there's a convention somewhere or some demo of something yeah that would
0: be a lot of fun i would i would love that um I personally would like to visit one of these fusion companies, mostly because I want to believe, I don't quite believe yet, but I really want to believe. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the, but there are, um, man, it would, be, it would be cool just to even see uh, if folks would allow us to, to see the inside of a battery manufacturing plant, as an example, right? Um, the scale that we're operating on is sometimes bewildering when we talk about this, people don't really understand how many square meters of building these things are. Um, and when people talk about direct air capture as a great example, yeah, let's go, let's go down to visit Occidental. There's your field trip. There we go. What, what is this? I don't know when they're gonna have this thing built, but I have, you know, I do, I do one of the things I do is techno-economic analysis. I got a spreadsheet somewhere on my laptop here that tells me how many square meters of uh of fans that those guys are planning on, on on putting in and you know uh carbon is is 0.04% of the of the air co2 is points and and so it's a lot of fans i mean like it's a mind blowing amount of fans it is hundreds of millions of dollars and they're not like little house fans but you can they're not that different from Little House fans. And um, I want to see it because I can't wrap my brain around that. Well, I'm throwing it right
1: out there. Hey, Vicky, Seth and I want to come see it and we'll shoot content for it. You'll have down. a traditional oil and gas pro bro on one side and a technologist, environmentalist on the other side. And we'll... uh
0: We'll uh we'll come see it and check oh, it dude, out. If, I, if if Vicky sits down with me, I'm gonna have such a hard time talking to my friends. Totally, Vicky, bring it, hundred <laughs> percent. I'm there. Um, I want to see. Right, I no. want to. I, I want these. I want to see if these things are real. Awesome. Well, Seth, how do people
1: find you if somebody wants to reach out? You on LinkedIn, Twitter, any of I, those spots?
0: Yeah, e- uh, Twitter. Is that what it's called anymore? X. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, no, there was a period where I thought I was going to be on Twitter. But right now, Seth Miller, easiest way to find me to look me up on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm happy to talk to, obviously, I'm happy to talk to anybody. Um, uh, if, they're <laughs> friend, if, they're, if they're a friend of, and listener of Chuck, even better. So <laughs> please uh, feel free to reach out. I will engage. You're too
1: kind. You're too kind. Well, again, appreciate you coming on.